take their seats. We'll begin with prayer here this morning. It's good to see everybody. Whoop. Sorry, I'm a little loud there. I'll have everybody take their seats and we'll open up with prayer. They don't listen to you. Yeah. <laughs> All right, we'll, we'll begin with prayer here this morning. And <laughs> we are going to start. <laughs> that's good. That's right. Love's in the air. That's right. No, it's great. A ten. That's right. Oh, Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for our, the freedom to gather together to learn your word. And we do pray, Lord, as we look at the battle of Gog and Magog and the sentencing of Satan to hell, that we'd remember that we've been spared these things through faith in your Son. And uh, Lord, put it on our hearts to want to help others to avoid the wrath of God. I pray that you'd use this to reinvigorate us to preach the gospel. Give us your boldness and courage. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> Dear ones, last time we left off, we're talking about this battle of Gog and Magog. And one of the reasons I'm somewhat excited to talk about it is there's been a lot of confusion about the battle of Gog and Magog. What is it? When is it? Where is it? All of these things. And so we've been trying to give some clarity of thought to that. Now, remember, I'm going to do a little review from last week. Last week I talked about the traditional evangelical answers of what this battle of Gog and Magog is talked about in the book of Revelation chapter 20. And remember it was alluded to also in Ezekiel 38 and 39. So of course the big debate is, is that the same battle or are they different battles? Well traditional evangelical answers really stemming from men like John Wolverd and Dwight Pentecost from Dallas Theological Seminary came up with these conclusions. Now, as I say that, I don't want anyone to think that I'm bad-mouthing John Wolvert and Dwight Pentecost. I think they've got a lot right, and they've done a lot of good. It's just that there are some better answers today as to the etymology of these words that we see. So, traditionally, a man like Wolvert would say that Gog and Magog would be, Gog would be the prince of Asia, and Magog would be kind of the area, whereas Rosh would be Russia, Meshek would be Moscow, and Tubal would be Tubal's. Now, one of the problems with that is, remember, modern-day scholarship have shown us that, let's work our way backwards, Tubal and Meshek are better understood not as references to cities within Russia, but as nations from the table of nations in Genesis 10 that settled in the northern Mediterranean area. That's where they were. And what's more, we also saw that Rosh is not a reference to Russia. In fact, Edwin Yamauchi, the famous historian, he's still alive with us today, he has done research saying that the first instance of Rush or Rosh that entered into Russia for the name of Russia didn't come into the Middle Ages and it was brought about by the Vikings. Well, the Middle Ages is a lot of years after the time that the book of Revelation was written and obviously the book of Ezekiel was written. Okay, so Rosh is not Russia. So here's the better scholarship today. Gog and Magog has to do with the land of the northern Mediterranean. Rosh means chief. It's not Russia. It's actually a reference to chief. It's the chief prince of Meshek and Tubal. Meshek is modern-day Turkey, Iran, Iraq, that area, and so was Tubal. Okay, and so that's what we looked at. Now, the other thing we wrestled with is when does this battle occur? Well, Ezekiel 38 verse 8 squarely puts this in the latter days. Obviously, Revelation chapter 20 that we're reading about, we're reading about something that occurs after the millennial kingdom. But remember, 
Our debate is, is the battle in Ezekiel 30 and 39 the same as Revelation chapter 20? There's no uh, passage that clearly states it. However, I think we should be predisposed to saying they're probably the same. Okay? But from Ezekiel 38.8, we know that the battle described there is going to happen in the latter years. And we discussed how the latter years or the last days limit the time frame from the first advent of Christ onward. Ever since the first advent of Christ, you and I have been living in what? The last days. So because of that, we know that we can limit when this battle would occur sometime in the last days, beginning with the first advent. So we came up with three different time periods. Did it happen during the church age? Or will this battle occur during or right after the 70th week? Or will it happen after the millennial kingdom? Now, let me pull up my pointer and let's hit these just one more time. What's the problem with saying that this battle will occur during the church age? That's the age that we're living in now. Remember, four times in Ezekiel 38 and 39, Ezekiel depicts Israel as living securely when this battle occurs. Can we say that now, today, Israel is living securely during the church age? Well, no. They have rockets and jihadists after them all the time. Uh, a few weeks ago, Starot, an uh, Israelite city, had a bunch of rockets launched against it from Gaza. They're not living in security whatsoever. So we can rule out, I think, clearly the church age. Now, there's another issue. We've learned the doctrine of imminence. If this battle must occur prior to the parousia of Christ, well, then the parousia, the return of Christ, is not something that's imminent. Because if something must precede an event, well, that event can't occur until what precedes it occurs. Okay, so that would rule out the doctrine of imminence. So that's another strike against it. Now, what about the 70th week of Daniel? This is where Dwight Pentecost and John Wolver, they placed the battle of Gog and Magog, alluded to in Ezekiel 38, within this time period. Well, let's talk a little bit more detail. Do you remember the first three and a half years of the 70th week of Daniel, you have an alliance, really a treaty that's made, so that Israel lives securely. Well, if Israel is living somewhat securely from threat, we can't have the battle occur during that time period. But the last three and a half years is characterized by warfare. And therefore, you cannot say that Israel is living securely. Now, when I say Israel is living securely... I think the best time period that this refers to is the millennial kingdom. The idea is that not that it's a false security, one that they're being set up for disaster, but one in which they really live in unwalled cities securely, just as God promised. That happens, I think, best understood is when the Messiah reigns. Therefore, the best understanding is the battle of Ezekiel 38 and 39 occurs after the millennial kingdom, just as Revelation chapter 20 is referring to. Revelation chapter 20 alludes to Gog and Magog after the millennial kingdom, this battle. Ezekiel 30 and 39, therefore, would be synonymous. That was the evidence that I laid out. Now, this is the evidence that I gave for the after the millennial view. Revelation 20 and Ezekiel 38 and 39 have remarkable similarities. By the way, I didn't mention this, but the greatest similarity is that they both mention Gog and Magog. Notice Gog and Magog is silent throughout all the book of revelation until you get to the chapter of revelation chapter 20 that we're studying now after the millennial kingdom so one of the most striking similarities is that they both mention gog and magog 
Number one, we also see a large number of enemy troops. We see that in Ezekiel 38, Revelation chapter 20, verse 8. We see that both battles occur in Israel. Number three, Israel would be living securely in the land. That's what happens during the millennial kingdom. For the first time, Israel will be secure. But I also showed you that there was a connection between the fact that both battles in Ezekiel 38 and 39 and also in Revelation chapter 20, you have God calling down fire. And I showed you the evidence of that. Ezekiel 39, 5 through 6, the prophet said, to the enemies of God that will come upon Israel in this future battle, he said, you will fall on the open field, for it is I who have spoken, declares the Lord God, and I will send fire upon Magog and those who inhabit the coastlands in safety, and they will know that I am Yahweh. And then we see Revelation 20, verse 9. And they came up on the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city, and fire came down from heaven and devoured them. So notice the similarities that God calls down fire in both instances. We also talked a little bit about the significance of this phrase, beloved city, with reference to Jerusalem. Now, I want to focus for a moment just on this idea that God calls down fire Because I want you to see that this is a theme that's occurred in history where God in judgment has called wrath down. Some years ago, Bob was talking about, in a Sunday school, exemplary judgments. Now, Sodom and Gomorrah was such a judgment. An exemplary judgment is one in which the biblical writers use it as evidence that one day God will judge again in the future. So just because God tolerates sinners now doesn't mean he's going to do so indefinitely. Well, remember in Sodom and Gomorrah, you had fire come down. And it serves as an exemplary judgment that one day God will judge the ungodly. A second point in history is that, remember in Leviticus 10, Nadab and Abihu, they're sons of Aaron. They're priests. And what do they do? Well, they think that they can come to God on any terms they want, and they offer profane fire before the Lord, a fire that the Lord has not ordained, and what happens? They're wiped out by fire. Okay? Now, I think there's a good application in that story to the modern-day church, that you and I cannot come to God on our own terms. We have to come to God on His terms. Much of what's referred to as the church isn't the church at all. They're acting like Nadab and Abihu, coming up with mystical practices, having a God that's pantheistic or panentheistic, not even theistic anymore. No longer a distinction between the creator and the creation. And so all of the practices that we see in the church, whether it's yoga, meditation, Lectio Divina, all of this mysticism is a form of offering profane fire, if you follow the analogy. And again, one day God will put that down. Third, remember the showdown between Elijah and the false prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel? For those of you that were in Israel, it's kind of fun being up on Mount Carmel. And you can see where this all transpired. Now remember in 1 Kings 19.24, Elijah says, remember to the false prophets of Baal? He says, the God who responds with fire is the true God. So he has this contest. They each have their sacrifices put out, their offering. And the one who responds with fire to devour the sacrifice, he's the true God. Well, who does that? Well, of course, it's Yahweh. So Yahweh responded by fire and devoured the sacrifice. Now, remember, Elijah wasn't done with this whole fire from heaven business. In 2 Kings chapter 1, do you remember Ahaziah? 
He was this wicked king of the northern kingdom of Israel. He was a son of Ahab. And he had fallen and incurred an injury and some illness associated with it. Well, remember, he was not a believer. He followed in the steps of his wicked mother, Jezebel, and inquired of the prophets of Beelzebub. And remember, Elijah's rebuke was, isn't there a prophet in Israel that you should be seeking, O Ahaziah? And what does Ahaziah do? Does he say, you know what, you're right, I should repent and turn to the Lord? No, he's going to use the sword, namely a captain and 50 military men, to go arrest Elijah. Well, how does that work out for him? Well, Elijah calls fire down and wipes out the 50 and a captain. Do you remember what Ahaziah does again? He does the same thing. He sends another captain and another 50 men. How does that work out? Fire comes down and devours them. Doesn't work out so good. Elijah was a prophet of God who spoke the very words of God, and God responded with fire. Okay, now, let me show you another one. Revelation eleven five. We see this in the 70th week of Daniel. The 70th week of Daniel is different than the time period we're living in now. Now we have prophets on the scene of history again. And what happens? Well, as they're persecuted, they send out fire to consume their enemies. Now, two points of caution that I want to mention about this calling down fire. Number one, Jesus' disciples... According to Luke chapter 9, they want to call down fire. Bob taught us on that. That wasn't a good idea. Remember, people were not repenting. They were not coming to Christ. And what do the disciples want to do? They want to call down fire. Okay, well, is that our job now as believers, is to want to wipe out our enemies? No. Right now, as we live in the church age, you and I are to be those who are merciful. I want you to think of James 1.20, where it says that the wrath of man does not bring about the righteousness of God. And so what you and I are to do is to show mercy and grace to be about the gospel and let vengeance be the Lord's. So our jobs as emissaries of Christ, as his proclaimers, is to proclaim the gospel so that people can be set free from the bondage of sin and be saved from the wrath of God just as we were. And let God put vengeance in his time, which occurs in the 70th week of Daniel. I'm sorry, Christy, go ahead. This is just a typo. <laughs> it's nothing profound. Um, oh, you know what? I'm sorry. In fact, I had it in number my notes. Three. It's 1838. <laughs> yep. I tried I to know. look 1938 up. So number yeah. three, first Kings should be 1838. Your notes say 1938. Yeah, I'm sorry. I, I had that in my notes to mention that, and I skipped right I, over it. I wasn't it. sure if she had a comment or not. <laughs> yeah, no, it's good. Yeah, so instead of first Kings, um, it, it should be 1838, as she just said, but I have 1938 on your, I found it this week, and I missed it, so. Anyway, yeah, Barb. I was just going to mention that, um, you know, everybody's probably familiar with the New Apostolic Reformation. Yes. And um, Bethel Church, a place like that. And they're always singing and praying for God to, you know, they're calling fire down all the time, thinking it's the Holy Spirit. Right. And uh, lots of singing and praying about that and that, that um, heretical um, cult. <laughs> Yes, it is. Absolutely. And you know, some of the confusion occurs. Do you remember John the Baptist? He said, I baptize you in the water, but there's one who's coming after me whose sandals I'm unworthy of untying. He said, he's going to baptize you in fire in the spirit. But what's interesting is the fire that's alluded to there throughout the scriptures has to do for the believer a refining fire, a fire in which God is going to purify his people but it's never one in which that you and I are to call down judgment upon our enemies here and now, for vengeance is the Lord's. We learned that in our Roman study. 
So you're absolutely right. They have this infatuation with doing miraculous things, trying to prove that they are spokesmen for God, just like the apostles and the prophets, which in fact they're, they're not. <laughs> so very good point, yeah. Bob, did you want to, you had just had a discussion with the false uh, and, and the uh, uh, new apostolic reformation. Yeah, I've been before. doing a little de- internet debate to make sure I understand Luke Acts. Yeah. And some in the apostles and prophets movement are claiming that Paul was in rebellion against God because some people in Acts 21 told them, quote, by the, told him, quote, by the spirit or pleaded with him not to go to Jerusalem. So I had this big, long debate going. And in the end, the only thing that matters is what Luke meant. Right. What the biblical writers meant, right? And Luke was actually with Paul when all this happened. Yeah. And so this will help me as I'm teaching Luke X. But in the end of Luke 21, Paul finally said to them, why are you weeping and breaking my heart? I'm willing not only to suffer, but to die. It needs to be in Jerusalem. And then they relented and said, well, let the will of the Lord be done. Well, these uh, apostles are claiming it was not God's will that he go, that he should have listened to those people, and that he was rebellious because he wanted to go to the Jews and God had sent him to the Gentiles. Well, so in my debate, I said, well, is that what Luke is trying to tell us? Right. So I read Tannehill, did some more research. Tannehill pointed out that when Jesus was in Gethsemane, Jesus in Luke yeah. said, if possible, let this cup pass from me, but not my will, but thine be done. And so in a similar way, and I've told you before, from Luke 9.51 on, Jesus is going to Jerusalem right, the travel narrative. to be rejected. And Acts, Paul is going to Jerusalem to be rejected. Right. But see, they don't believe in authorial intent. Right. They believe in direct inspiration of the Spirit. So those people who, by the Spirit, pleaded with him not to go, that would be the direct inspiration. They don't really think much about what Luke was trying to tell us. Right. And I also pointed out in my debate that if you go back to Ananias who prayed for Paul... What did Jesus tell Ananias? That he was going to, Paul was going to suffer great things right. because of that. And furthermore, I just thought of this. Yeah. If Paul was so intent to rebel against God and go to Jerusalem, which I think is a bad reading. Right. Um, why elsewhere, when he was trying to go somewhere where there were Gentiles, was he hindered and forbidden Right. And ended up going to some other Gentiles. Right. Amen. And so Paul's willing to change course if that's what was appropriate. Right. And furthermore, mm-hmm. Paul was going there on a mission of mercy because Agabus yeah. had predicted a famine. And he was bringing an offering in order that the church might not be split between a Jewish and Gentile branches. Amen. Amen. And so Luke wasn't telling us that Paul was in rebellion. Exactly. So it's interesting to be talking to apostles and prophets, and I'm coming from the paradigm of authorial intent. What is Luke telling us? And they're coming from the paradigm 
of direct personal inspiration of the reader. Right. And so they, so that one's going around. They're trying to use it to throw us into a confusion. And so in the end, Luke was actually physically there, and he wrote Acts. Did Luke think Paul was rebelling against God or not? No. And the answer is no, he did not. So we have to read. Exactly. So anyhow, that's what I would Yeah, do. and Barb, that gets, to, I think, to the core issue is the reason why they want to call fire down and have all these different miraculous things is to prove that they're authoritative spokesmen for God, right. when in fact the authoritative spokesmen, we, they've spoken once and for all. That's what Jude 3, we're to contend for a faith once and for all delivered to the saints. That's so. what I was saying, and they, yeah. they're just, they, they never even think about anything like no, that. No, it's not on There's the There's no radar. once for all about anything right? <laughs> for the that's apostles right. and prophets. Because they claim that they're the new Elijahs and right, and they visit heaven and yeah, they're the new Elijahs. That's yeah, and they're going to do greater miracles than Jesus. Although yeah. this guy wasn't claiming that, but the Bethel prophets out in Redding, California, yeah. claim they're going to do or have done. Uh, Todd Bentley claims he raised five people from the dead. Right, right. Uh, and he and he and you can take his course and learn how to go to the yeah. third heaven. Yeah, you probably didn't know that's something you could learn. So how to you got to go to a class to learn how to raise the dead. <laughs> yeah. Well, my mom and I are here, and all you folks did was just pray. <laughs> that's and right. We're not dead. That's right. Amen. So I think we can pray. Yeah. Okay. Amen. Amen. <laughs> well said. Now, one other point I want to make about this calling down fire: realize Antichrist also does this in Revelation thirteen thirteen. Remember, he calls down fire from heaven. So here's the point. The calling down of fire isn't necessarily the infallible proof that someone speaks for God, for even the Antichrist is going to do this within the 70th week of Daniel to deceive those who are the non-elect. So that uh, is another point I want to bring up. Now, let's uh, keep going, though. We see in verse 10, then in Revelation chapter 20, that Satan is going to be destroyed in the lake of fire. Now, before I do this, let's just review. The battle of Gog and Magog is going to be a battle then that occurs after the thousand-year reign of Christ, where Satan is released, he brings out all of the unregenerate from these nations surrounding Israel, and he brings them to a battle. What happens is Christ calls fire down upon them, just as alluded to in Ezekiel 38 and 39, and then what happens is all of the enemies of God now are going to be sentenced. We're going to look at that, and it begins here with Satan himself. So here, Revelation 20, verse 10 It says, and the devil who deceived them was thrown, and by the way, the them were the nations, was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are also, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Now, this is very similar to what Jesus had promised during his earthly ministry. Remember in Matthew 25, 41, as part of really the Olivet Discourse, he said, then he will say to those on his left, these are the unregenerate unbelievers, depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire, which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. Okay, so here we see in Matthew twenty-five forty-one that the lake of fire that is eternal was specifically designed for the devil and his angels. And sure enough, in Revelation chapter 20, that's exactly where Satan is placed, along with the beast and the false prophet as well. Now, one thing that people will bring up when they think about this idea of a lake of fire, they'll say, well, how can you on the one hand have a lake of fire, and on the other hand, like in Matthew 25, 30, you have this place of outer darkness? 
It seems to be incongruent. How can you have fire with darkness? Well, I don't think it's incongruent at all. Many of you have been around a campfire at night, and being around a campfire at night, you have certainly seen that it's dark out, and yet if you get too close to the fire, you will burn, okay? In the same way, where is the light coming from in the new heavens, the new earth, and the new Jerusalem? Well, it's from the Lord himself. And these are people who are excluded from his light, therefore his glory, therefore his face and salvation. And they're going to be under the wrath of God in torment. This lake of fire is real, and it is, just as it says, eternal. It's forever and ever. It just means what it says. Eternal in Matthew twenty-five forty-one simply is aeonion, which means without duration, or, you know, uh, long duration, without end. That's the idea, okay? So without end to its duration. That's how it's rendered in the low night lexicon. So it is. It's forever, and that's very bad news. Now, one thing I think we can glean from this is I want to just talk about what happens to Satan after the cross versus what happens to Jesus after the cross. Now, here's why I want to hit this. Remember, the post-millennialists, or especially the amillennialists, they will claim that all of Jesus' work on the cross is what bounds Satan. Okay, so how is Satan bound? Well, he's bound by the work of Christ on the cross. Well, the problem with saying that, of course, is Satan ends up being released to deceive these nations for the battle of Gog and Magog. So the question would be, if Satan was bound by the work of the cross, then he's released... Is the work of the cross being undone? Well, of course not. The work of the cross is never undone. So that's a bad reading. So what I want to show you is that there really is a process in the defeat of Satan. So let's begin. At the cross, Satan's accusations can't stick. That's one of the things that occurs in history. Why? We learn in Colossians 2.13 that the debts and the decrees that were against us, which would be the law, you and I are lawbreakers, And as soon as you and I break the law, Satan really does have some ammunition against us. He can claim in the heavenly realm that you and I are sinners. But according to Colossians 2, 13 through 15, that was nailed to the cross. In fact, let me read to you Colossians 2, 14 through 15. Paul says, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Now notice verse 15, when he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, those are the cosmic angelic beings, the demons that are against us. He made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through the cross or by the cross. Okay, so again, the cross is something that's very significant. Satan no longer has an accusation that he can make against us. Why? It's been paid in full. Jesus Christ's death on the cross pays our debt so that we have propitiation, God is appeased. We have expiation, our sins are removed. So Satan can bluster all he wants, his accusations won't stick. But notice there's another stage. We see in the 70th week of Daniel, according to Revelation chapter 12, that one day Satan will be cast out of heaven. Now this occurs just prior to the last three and a half years. That's why the Great Tribulation is called the Great Tribulation, because Satan comes down to earth. He's cast out. It said that in Revelation 12, 9. It said the great dragon was thrown down, the serpent of old who was called the devil and Satan who deceives the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. This doesn't occur in history. This occurs within the 70th week of Daniel. How do we know that? 
Because right after that, you have the persecution for 1,260 days to three and a half years. That's so severe, Israel has to be nourished in the wilderness. Okay, so that's when it occurs down. So notice after the cross, Satan's accusations can't stick. Well, in the 70th week of Daniel, now he's thrown down from heaven. He can't even be in the throne room. But this isn't the end of it. Then in the third stage, he's bound for a thousand years where he can no longer deceive the nations. That's during the millennial kingdom. That's what Dana Birkinshaw was teaching us. During this millennial kingdom, you're going to have unprecedented peace. The people of God will live securely because Satan is bound. But then after that, Satan is put now in the lake of fire. We just read that. So see, after the cross, Satan just goes down, 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 and down. But it does happen in stages. And it's overly simplistic to simply say that Revelation 20 talking about the binding of Satan happens immediately after the cross. No, there's a process involved. And the first part of it is that Satan's accusations can't stick against you. Jesus earned that for you at the cross, but the rest occurs later in history. Okay, now let's contrast that with Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, remember after the cross, he gives atonement once and for all. And by the way, his exaltation begins immediately when he's buried with the wealthy. That was a promise in Isaiah 53, 9. Remember, because there was no deceit found upon his mouth, he would be allotted with burial with the wealthy. And he was buried in Joseph of Arimathea's tomb. Now, that's not a lot, but it gets better from there. Certainly on the third day, he's raised from the dead. He's the first fruits of the resurrection, the down payment necessitating that one day the rest of his people will follow. Third, Jesus ascends to the right hand of God, where he lives now to make intercession for his people and from where he's coming again. And he does come again at his parousia. Jesus comes to reign again. So notice after the cross for Jesus, it's just up, up, and up. Okay, so the cross is a defining moment. And what I would like you to think about, we've often talked about this already, not yet. Oops, let me try to pull up my laser pointer. Think of this, already, not yet. Already, not yet. Is everyone with me? That's how we should conceive of our, the time period that we're living in in the future yet to come. Um, another way of putting it is we have inauguration, we have consummation. We have inauguration, we have consummation. That's another way of putting the already not yet. Yes, Bob. In your research, did anybody allude to Zechariah 3, 1 through 5, about the, the accuser? Yeah. Is, do you think there's a relationship or an allusion to that? I, I do. And, you know, he is depicted even there as the accuser of the brethren. And his accusations really are undone in one day which is so shocking in that Zechariah 3 passage. Yeah, it talks about, uh, may the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Exactly. So it is, right. it is pertinent. I, I think it is. And in fact, in that whole passage in Zechariah, the promise is that he will remove the sins of the land in one day. And I believe that that's exactly what happens at the cross, that in that one unique day, the sins of the people are removed and so, therefore, the accusations, because that's what he's making in Zechariah 3. So yeah, he's making yeah accusations. that's where I saw the exactly. link with the accusations. Right, and then they're, they're removed. So what do we need to do to know that we're okay? 
Repent and trust upon Christ. Yeah, believe the promises of God that yep. Amen. if Christ took away our sins. That's right. We got nothing to worry about. Well, I've been about. trying to tell people they don't need to talk to Satan themselves. Right. Exactly. We but need to some people have accused me of being in league with Satan because I'm telling people to go to Christ rather than to personally wow. rebuke Satan. Yeah. But this passage says the Lord rebuke you. Exactly. That's so right. aren't, aren't we getting out of our own realm if we're going to go fly into the heavens and interact right. with, with the heavenly council exactly. as humans that don't even know what we're doing? Right. We see the same idea in Jude. I know, but I can't get anybody to pay attention to what I'm telling them. <laughs> yeah, that's because I think it's a moral issue on the part of the... I think they're, they're, they think they, they think there's something weak and uh, beggarly about depending on God to do for us what we can't do for ourselves. Yeah. They're all about what they're going to do. Right. You know, that's a good way of putting it, Bob. You know, think of it this way. If, if Jesus doesn't do this, all, everything that you see on the screen... And by the way, everything that you see on the screen that Jesus accomplish, accomplishes means he's sufficient. If Jesus is sufficient, then we need nothing else. Now think about Roman Catholicism. Roman Catholicism has a different Jesus. Okay, now why do they have a different Jesus? Well, because our Jesus saves us from the wrath of God from first to last. Their Jesus doesn't. You have to have penance. You have to have purgatory. You have to have the meritory works of the saints. You have to have Mary for intercession. You have all these things that are added. Why? Because Christ isn't sufficient. And so that's the problem that Bob is dealing with. He's dealing with people who, when he turns them to the gospel so that they can have forgiveness of sins and telling them, don't interact with the demons. Jesus has defeated them once and for all on the cross. They're saying, well, no, that's not good enough. Why? Because they have a different Jesus. It's all about what Jesus you have. Remember the gospel? What is the gospel? Evangelion. It's where we get our term evangelical. It's good news. What is the good news? Is it the good news that you're going to get a rebate at the store? Or that the Vikings might win a Super Bowl one day or whatever? No. The good news centers on the person and the work of Christ, who he is and what he's done. And so once that's understood that that's the gospel, the gospel isn't redistributing your neighbor's wealth. As a social justice people, they're just communists. That's all they are. They just reword it. Social justice. We're for social justice. No, you're for a different gospel, and you have a different Jesus. The person and work of Jesus Christ sets you free from your sin debt from first to last. And once you have that, you have the right Jesus of the Bible because he's powerful to save. You need nothing else. And that's what Bob has been fighting about. Yeah. I'm sorry. Go ahead, Scott. Amen, amen. Um, I just was... Wondering how you, the uh, in the Gospels where Jesus is telling the disciples that he saw Satan cast from heaven, how does yeah. that fit in? And was that yeah? No, it's a great that, question. Was that descriptive yeah. or predictive? Well, I think it's descriptive, but it's also it's it's both and. And here's why: in the person and work of Christ during his earthly ministry, you have an inbreaking of the messianic kingdom. It's an already, but not yet. So what he does is he breaks forth into the kingdom. Remember, he's the one who can cast out demons. Um, he's the one who can tread down the waves of the sea. Job 9, 8, who is it alone that can tread down the waves of the sea? The answer is Yahweh. Jesus does that. Why? He's Yahweh. Um, Isaiah 35, 5 through 6 are fulfilled in him. Why? The dead are raised. The lame leap like deer. 
the blind see, the deaf hear. He's fulfilling all of these things to show us that in the person and work of Jesus, he's the Messiah, you have the inbreaking of God's kingdom, and therefore he's able to start pillaging Satan's kingdom. But that doesn't mean that there isn't a process in history that's revealed to us in the scriptures like Revelation chapter 12 where Satan is thrown down, Revelation 20 where he's bound. There's a process that's going to occur. But the reason why Jesus states that is because in his person and work, this is beginning to happen even during his earthly first advent. Does that make sense? He is pillaging saints. Yes, Bob. Yeah, one way to describe that with, is with the English word proleptic. Yes, proleptic. Okay, is there was a proleptic event that Jesus describes, uh, prefigures the final actual. Yes. So, but see, I, that one came up too. They're, yeah. they're saying, well, if we don't do it, then nothing's going to happen. Wow. Okay. Wow. Jesus is going to sit there, uh, sitting on his hands, waiting for us to do it. Right, right. Yeah, okay. it sounds like post-millennialism. Yeah. So the term, I remember dealing with that too. It's called prolepsis or a proleptic event. Yeah, absolutely. The, the, in Luke, the things that happen show that there's a way out of the kingdom of darkness. Right, right. And that way out is through Christ alone. Amen. But it isn't there to show us what we can do if we just get the right secret knowledge exactly. or we have enough power or if we're pious enough or we prayed long enough right. or we took an oath of the poverty or we joined a convent <laughs> right. or we became a priest who well, refuses to, to forbid forbidding marriage. Right, doctrine of demons. Yeah, there's all these doctrines of demons. Yeah. But we have apostles and prophets who are quasi-Catholic in their worldview. They are, right. There's nothing evangelical about them. Amen. Well said. Well, um, with that, you know what? Let me turn to our next section. What I want to do is come to the white throne judgment because now we're going to be coming to a judgment that happens to all unbelievers. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. You know what? I forgot your name. My name is Marcia. Marcia. That's right. Yeah, I just, um, you know, you've probably already gone through this because we're kind of new, but... I'm just thinking of the time when, like, Paul cast the demon out of the woman and when the other disciples cast out demons and Jesus said, don't rejoice over this. Um, and didn't he tell us to, you know, heal people and cast out demons and that? I mean, I'm just confused about No, no, that. that's very good. Um, one of the passages where you see an allusion to this is at the end of Mark, in Mark 16. What's very interesting, and, and by the way, Dan is going to be doing a whole study on this on Wednesday nights. It's about manuscript evidence. The earliest and best manuscripts we have don't contain Mark 16, verses 9 onward. It ends at verse 8 with the resurrection. And so what happens is you have all these wayward doctrines that are thrust into something that really isn't Scripture. And so that's the only place that you see this idea of casting out demons. Now, when the apostles and prophets are on the scenes of history... They're doing miraculous deeds, not because they're some spiritual superstar, but because God is authenticating that these are the very spokesmen of Christ. And so they speak his word. So, for example, the one example I like to use is in Acts 5. You have the shadow of Peter would fall. It would, he'd be walking. It would come across someone who was ill, and the person was healed. The implication was is that these apostles did miraculous deeds. We see this in Hebrews chapter 2 as well. Well, when my shadow comes across somebody... It doesn't do them a look of good. It may keep them from having sunburn for a moment, but that's about it. And it's not because I'm 
less saved or justified by the work of Christ. But the idea was that these apostles were his spokesmen. And so the miraculous deeds, what's commonly misunderstood is oftentimes Christians think miraculous deeds are used by God to authenticate his existence. That wasn't the point in the ancient Near East. The ancient Near East, they knew God existed or some God. And, and so Paul preaches on the unknown God, he tells them. But it's through revelation that we know who it is. So the big issue is that the miracles authenticate who speaks for God. Now, do false prophets at times do miraculous things? Oh, yes, Moses contended with the, uh, the charlatans of Egypt. We're going to have the false Messiah, the Antichrist, do miraculous deeds. So there's also a doctrinal test. And so if, in fact, someone's doing miraculous deeds and it's not consistent with the doctrine that we know from Scripture, they're also to be a $3 bill. You know, they're not genuine is the idea. So does that help? So nowhere in Scripture are you and I explicitly told to cast out demons. Um, We're also, by the way, not commanded to fast. Um, We had a guy once who was an expert on New Testament manuscripts. His name was Dan Wallace. And there's a famous passage in Mark 9 where it says these only come out by prayer, that is, uh, these demons. Well, some manuscripts have and fasting. So the question was, well, is it just prayer or is it prayer and fasting? And Dan Wallace, the expert on all the manuscript evidence, he says, well, look at my waistline. He was a heavy set fellow, loved to eat. He goes, what do you think? <laughs> it wasn't fasting. <laughs> and his whole point was, he, um, it was just prayer. So you and I are commanded to pray. We're not commanded to fast. We're not commanded to cast out demons. What we're commanded to do is to be those who give the gospel. We're to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, because it's the gospel that pillages Satan's kingdom once and for all and brings people from death to life, from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of the beloved Son. So does that, does that help? And then Dane is going to be talking about these manuscripts, so you don't think that we're heretics saying that at the end of Mark... We're just trying to say someone added to the Bible, and there is a, a pronouncement of judgment in the book of Revelation itself with anybody who adds to the Bible. So the best manuscript evidence certainly supports that it ends with the resurrection, and that's it. So all those wayward doctrines come from wayward passages that were never part of our Bible. And, yeah. So, yeah, I'm sorry. Go, go ahead, Eric. Um, so I was thinking, you know, there's a couple verses that Jesus says about faith. And I was thinking about how he says, you know, if you believe you're able to cast your say to this mountain, you know, go from here to there. <coughs> and, and it occurred to me, you know, there's a, there's a faith movement out there that says, well, faith is derived of us, so we have to believe so that we can do these things. Well, it's not stated that way in the scriptures. It's stated more like, it's like in Acts when, uh, when they, the high priest, or they went before... <clears throat> excuse me, the, the apostles went before the priest and they were accusing him and saying, don't speak in this name anymore. Well, then the apostles went to God. This is after Pentecost, I believe. And, um, and they said, they cried out to God. They said, you know, Lord, these are the people that persecuted your prophets. Now they're persecuting us. And I, I believe they even asked God, would you, would you raise your hand and, you know, help us of some, something like that in the prayer? And what happened was God then moved among them, and he and they began to do miraculous signs. And it wasn't just the apostles; it was you know, deacons and and of just men of God that that God's grace chose. And I think that's part of the reason why it says, "Don't look down on someone that has more faith, or don't or the one that has more faith shouldn't look down on the, on the one with lesser faith, because faith is actually from God. So the ability to do signs or miracles or Whatever God chooses is from God, and it's his grace at that time. Which 
Yeah, you know, um, let me just address that. First of all, let's just talk about what faith is and the idea that if you had faith, you could say to this mountain, be moved and be cast into the sea. The idea that faith, the kind of faith that Jesus is calling for is a faith, first of all, directed in him. So there's always a valid object of faith, and it's Christ and his promises, okay? Now, this idea of promising that if we will do that, if we will have that kind of faith, we can do miraculous deeds, it's certainly limited by the will of God, okay? So, for example, uh, Paul prayed uh, how many times that his thorn in the flesh should be removed, and what did the Lord say? He says, no, my grace is sufficient, okay? So you and I can certainly pray, but the Lord can also say no. But the big issue is that, remember when Jesus says, greater works than these will you do? A lot of people take that and say, well, look, I'm going to be a person of faith, and I'm going to do even greater works than Jesus did. Therefore, I'm going to do miraculous things that the world has never seen. The greatest work that we can do is bring someone to saving faith where they leave the kingdom of darkness for the kingdom of the beloved son. And proof of that is, do you remember in Mark chapter 2, you have the paralytic man, and he's brought to Jesus by his friends. They have to lower him down through the, the hole in the roof, remember? And Jesus says in the presence of all that his sins are forgiven. Well, the guy's paralyzed. And for him, the issue isn't, well, my sins are forgiven. Oh, yeah, I want to I walk. That's what he's thinking. But Jesus points out the real issue is not that he walks. That's a yawner to God. The big issue is that his sins would be forgiven because then one day he's going to walk in eternity forever in a resurrected body. So Jesus says, so that you know that the Son of Man has the power to forgive sins, get up your, um, take up your pallet and walk. But he says, which is more difficult, to forgive sins or to make the, the man walk? And Jesus says, it's, it's the former and it's the more important work. So the greater works that you and I are to do, people belittle it, say, well, you just brought people to have remission of sins. That's the greatest miracle you could ever do. Do you know it's a miraculous deed that anyone would come to faith in Christ? It's a miraculous... No one can come to me unless the Father draws him. It's a miraculous deed. So those are the greater miracles that we're called to do. Yeah, I'm sorry. Luann. I just wanted to add real quick, too, because Abraham's in the hall of faith, so he, his life would be an example of someone of faith. Yes. And one of the examples is, is that you know, God gave him a land promise. And so when it came time for Lot and Abram to divide, the, um, Abram, who could have chosen anything he wanted, but he said, Lot, you go ahead and you pick, because he trusted God that God was going to fulfill that promise. He didn't have to do any miraculous thing. He was trusting God, and that's why he's in the hall of faith. Amen. Amen. Well said. That's a yeah, very good point, Luann. Yeah, excellent. Um, was there somebody else? I'm sorry. I knew there was I just yeah, wanted Brian. to say real quick, I like the point you made about the most miraculous <laughs> thing you can do is to present the gospel to somebody and, and they get saved. Uh, that being said, look how many times Jesus performed miracles and people didn't believe. So exactly. it, it doesn't matter. That's right. That's right. Um, back to Eric, too, you brought up Acts 7, where you have the apostles who are prohibited from teaching and preaching in the name of Christ. But what's interesting is they weren't prohibited from doing miraculous deeds. And it shows that the real power is in the preaching of the gospel, because there is where people's sins are removed. That's the issue. Now, let me um, come to this topic now. I want to talk about the white throne judgment. I want to talk about a big divide in theology and how important an issue this really is. The judgment that we're about to look at is a judgment that's only for unbelievers. However, those who are amillennial and postmillennial believe 
that all people will be at this judgment. Okay, so now you start seeing, well, wait a minute, being amillennial and postmillennial is a completely different idea. Okay, so I'm going to claim to you that this white throne judgment is a judgment that only unbelievers will be at, yet you have amillennialists today who will claim that, no, this is a judgment that every single person will come to. And so that's why this is such a big issue that we delve into the details. So let's continue here in Revelation 20, verse 11. As we continue it, John comes to another vision here that's related. He says, Revelation 20, 11, he says, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who sat upon it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. Wow. Now, the first thing I want to do is look at this underlined portion. I'll come back to the red in just a moment. But I want you to notice that the scene here is of this great white throne with the heavenly father upon it. And it says, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away. And it's a very interesting term, fled away. Ephugen just means that. It means to flee. But in the context of the Bible, and I'm talking about the entire canon, this fleeing away of the heavens and the earth has to do with their utter destruction. So this is where you have the heavens and the earth destroyed. All right, now I want you to think about that, that even the heavens and the earth are going to be gotten rid of, and yet these sinners still exist, as it were, and they are going to be before the presence of the Holy One of Israel for judgment. Now, how do we know that this fleeing away of the heavens and earth actually has to do with the destruction of the heavens and earth? Well, I'm glad you asked. Let's turn our Bibles and look at some evidence that that's exactly what's going to occur. Turn your Bibles to 2 Peter chapter 3, Let's look at verses 10 through 12. 2 Peter 3, 10 through 12. 2 Peter 3, 10 through 12. As you're turning there, I'll just grab a drink. Second Peter 3, 10 through 12. Now, the context here has to do with the day of the Lord. Remember, the day of the Lord begins with the rapture of the church the ensuing wrath of God poured out in the 70th week. But the day of the Lord is a broad period of time. That's what I kept laying that out. It's a broad day of the Lord. It goes on into eternity. Because the day of the Lord is the time in which God's people are saved once and for all and forever. And the enemies of God will be judged. Notice it says, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief. That's its inception. Notice that. Second Peter 3.10, it's like a thief. It's stealthy. It comes upon the world stealthily. That's the idea. In which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. Verse 11, since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for the hastening, the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat. But according to his promise, this is verse 13, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. So everyone sees in that passage then that the heavens and the earth are actually going to be destroyed. And that's what we see here happening in Revelation chapter 20, verse 11. Now, the other thing I want to point out is notice here you have a reference to the great white throne. This should bring our minds back to Daniel chapter 7. Now, why Daniel chapter 7? Because in Daniel chapter 7, there's a vision of the heavenly father on his throne. Now, let me just put up a few verses, and I'll have you turn to that in just a moment. But Daniel 7, 9, here's Daniel describing this vision, which is very similar. 
He says, as I looked, thrones were placed and the ancient of days, there's the heavenly father, took his seat. His clothing was white as snow and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. Now notice the similarities and the differences here in Daniel 7. The heavenly father is depicted as white. The idea of purity and perfection and holiness. But in Revelation 20 verse 11, you have a great white throne. Okay, so the throne is depicted as white. Now, is there a big discrepancy? No. The throne is always synonymous with God himself. Not that they're the same thing, but the idea is that the throne reflects the glory of God. Remember it says in Psalm 89 that the throne of God's righteousness is endowed with, excuse me, the throne of Yahweh is endowed with righteousness and mercy and justice. Remember that? So the idea is that what characterizes God is his mercy, his justice, his righteousness. But here we see what characterizes him is this white, this idea of purity and this idea of holiness. Now, I want you to continue reading on Daniel 7 with me because I want you to see how similar these really are. Read uh, Daniel 7.10. Hope you can all turn your Bibles there. Daniel 7.10. Again, I want you to see the connections here. Notice Daniel continues to see this vision of this judgment from this throne. He says, A river of fire was flowing and coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands were attending him, and myriads upon myriads were standing before him. The court sat, and the books were opened. Now notice the reference to the books. You're going to see that here in this white throne judgment. There's going to be books that are opened. And the unregenerate alone are going to be judged according to their deeds. Okay? So now, but one of the questions is where in the book of Revelation do we see the coming of the Son of Man? Because we see in Revelation 20, verse 11, right on the screen before you, a picture of the Father. And yet notice in Daniel 7, 13 through 14, you see the Messiah there as well. Notice it says, I kept looking in the night visions. This is Daniel 7, 13 through 14. I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. And he came up to the ancient of days. So now here you have the son coming to the father and was presented before him. And it says, and to him, that's to the son of man, was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away And his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. So here's the question. As we look at this throne room description in Revelation 20.11, where's the reference to Jesus the Son? Well, he's there, but you don't see him come explicitly until you get to Revelation 22.12. Okay, so he's there on the throne. So what's interesting is we see the same depiction, by and large, between Daniel 7 and Revelation 20. That, yes, indeed, God will judge all people according to the book's and what they had done. Okay, so all unbelievers are judged. That's what we see here in verse 12. John says, And I saw the dead, the great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. Now, notice here in the red, it's a reference to the dead. Now, the dead here are only unbelievers at this point. Now, how do we know that? Well, we know that because remember in Revelation 20, verse 5, 
Remember, after the millennial kingdom, it says, or during the millennial kingdom, it says the rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. Okay? Well, then remember in the very next verse, it says, Blessed is he who is part of the first resurrection, for the second death has no power over him. So the dead here have to be exclusively those who are unbelievers who had no part of the kingdom of God. That's who they are. And that's the best reading in light of Revelation 20, verses 5 through 6. Okay, so who are the dead? Well, they're all the unbelievers. That's who they are. Now, notice also it's great and small. Does everyone see that on the screen right after the dead? They're great and small, so it's everyone. It doesn't matter how much money you had or how little money you had. It doesn't matter how much power you had, prestige, or how little. What matters is that you're an unbeliever at this judgment, that you never came to Christ. Jesus' name means Yahweh is salvation. That's what Yeshua means. But for those that reject him, they get God as their judge. Notice also that they're standing. This implies a resurrection. Yes, the unregenerate will be raised up as well, but it's for the purpose of what? The purpose of judgment. So they're standing. All right. Now, the other thing I want to point out is notice here the reference to the books. There's two different sets of books, as it were. There are the books of deeds, and then there's the book of life. Now, how are you end up in the book of life? It's coming to faith in Christ. So if you're in the book of life, you're not going to be judged according to the books of the deeds. All right. Now, there's this long history in the Old Testament of God judging the unregenerate according to their deeds. Now, does God literally need a physical book to write them down? No, he's omniscient. He knows all things. But I think they're really perhaps there. Just as symbolic value that God is, in fact, recording every deed that every human being has done. It's like an anthropomorphism. It's the idea that we're using man-centered language to describe the idea that God really holds on to every deed that every human being has done. That every single person will really answer for what they've done unless their sins have been covered by the blood of the Lamb. Yeah, LaVon. I have a question about something that's confused me because um, it says, he who knew his father's will and prepared not himself will be beaten with many lashes, and he who didn't know. So that's got to be referring to the unbelievers, but God is not the father of unbelievers. So I'm yeah. confused why oh. he's be called, why he is called father I, I think it's in that the, verse. The, the point of the, the, I think the point of that passage is the idea of there's greater culpability for those who had greater revelation. So if someone knew the requirement and yet never came to faith, it's even more condemnable than it would be for those who, who were never saw the the light of divine revelation. Yes, they're still guilty. They had the light of the general revelation. Remember Romans one twenty, all are without excuse. So every person is going to end up at the judgment without Jesus Christ. But those who have greater revelation, who have rejected it, are going to receive the greater condemnation. That's why Jesus says, woe to you, Chorazin and Bethsaida. If the miracles had been done, the miracles that I did here would have been done in Sodom and Gomorrah, they would have repented long ago. And he said that they were going to receive the greater condemnation. Why? Because they'd seen greater light. So I, that's, I understand that's the, that, but yeah. I don't understand why it says, knew his father's will. To, to the unbeliever, they, they God is the not Yeah, I, I agree. Father. I don't think we should press it. I, it it's to, certainly, as Jesus describes him, he's certainly his father. Mm-hmm. 
but I, I don't know. I'd have to look at the passage itself. Um, do, do you have the actual passage that you... Um, yeah. But you are saying there are degrees of both reward and punishment? Exactly right. Okay, just to clarify. Yeah, amen. Exactly right. Yep. So now, I want to just... We're out of time, but I, one thing I want to point out, we'll get to this next time, but in Isaiah 65 and other passages, there's this idea of books being opened... We also saw that in Daniel 7.10. We just read that. So again, I don't think that God needs a book to remember, but the idea is simply that God does remember. And these are highly symbolic of that, that God remembers the deeds of all those who have not trusted in him, his son, and they will be judged accordingly. In fact, one thing I'll let, leave you with, and I'll get more into this, but notice they're going to be judged according to what they had done. Literally, in the NESB, I actually accidentally copied the ESV. It's according to their deeds. The deeds are their works, ergon. So here you have all the unregenerate. They're going to be judged according to their works. All right? So think about it. In, in the plan of salvation, there's only two ways. It's either by works or by grace. So those who reject God's grace, what do they get? Well, you're going to be judged according to your works. And how did you do? Were you perfect? No. That's the problem. The problem, because none of us are perfect, we want to be hidden by the blood of the Lamb from the wrath of God. And so that's where I think this is very evangelistic in nature to say, look, you're either going to be judged according to what you have done, which you'll fail miserably. Every one of us have. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Or we're going to be covered by the blood of the Lamb. Okay, these people exclusively are unbelievers. And if they said, hey, we want to be judged by our works, God says, well, here you go. That's the system that they chose. The system will works rather than God's grace. So with that, let's, let's end in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we do thank you that by your grace and power and mercy, you've called us to the throne of grace, to your, your beloved Son, that we can receive mercy and forgiveness of sins. And we do pray, Heavenly Father, that you would give the gospel to us, uh, that is the boldness to preach to those who are perishing. Give us opportunity. Uh, give us wisdom. And we also pray for those who don't know you, our family, friends, loved ones. We do pray, Heavenly Father, that they would repent and trust in you so that they would be judged not according to their works, but they would be covered by the blood of the Lamb, that they would have eternal life. We pray that you give us opportunity, even this week, to preach your gospel to our loved ones and our friends and neighbors. In Jesus' name, amen.